Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Cannon Tene. This week, unwelcome visitors and how to deal with them. Later, we'll hear about the work of a collaborative expedition with two national research programs aiming to protect our oceans from plastics and from pests. But first, Katie Gossett brings us a story about how a native fungus might help us in the fight against one of our most problematic invasive plants. I'm impressed at the diversity that you find just around campus. So I'm striding across the University of Canterbury grounds with master's student Genevieve Early and her supervisor, Professor of Microbial Ecology, Ian Dickey. I'm always seeing new little things I haven't spotted before. We're on our way to look at the organism she's been working with, and it's the kind of thing that inspires some big responses from the sublime. It's quite an amazing species to work on. They're really charismatic little organisms. It's just the coolest thing in the world. To the kind of unappealing. Sort of bizarre, almost alien tentacle looking things. It squirt out this lemon curd snot. So you're intrigued. What, you may ask, are we talking about here? Well, the answer is fungi. And once you know how to spot them, Genevieve often finds them around campus. There's a lot of little brown mushrooms that all look, to my eye, nearly the same. And puzzling out and figuring out what it is you've got in front of you. That's a really nerdy little puzzle. But before we get carried away on this mushroom hunt, today we're going to look at a specific fungus which Genevieve's been studying in the hope it might help tackle a big issue. The premise of my research is that we want to harness the potential of an indigenous fungus called armillaria, which produces mushrooms, and try and use that to inoculate sites with wilding pines to help suppress the growth. She got interested in the project after talking to her professor, Ian Dickey. We were doing a review on different ways that invasive plants interacted with fungi and we came across this idea of biotic resistance, which is the idea of native species that would prevent an invasion from happening. That got us reading about our malaria as a species that used to really limit pines in New Zealand. And we thought if we could bring that back and restore it into the ecosystem, it might actually help resist the invasion where we don't want it now. Because as many of us know, wilding pines are a major problem in New Zealand. Conifers were introduced here in the 1880s and they're invasive weeds, so they got around pretty quickly. The Department of Conservation estimates they now cover more than 1.8 million hectares of New Zealand and they're still building on that. Coverage is growing at a rate of about 5% a year. 
So the wilding pine really is, if I can use this term, the original super spreader. So in Canterbury it's particularly visible up around Hanmer Springs, around Molesworth Station and in the Craigieburn Ranges, where you can see that what is usually a sort of a dry grassland in its current state is just being covered with swathes of pine trees and turning into a totally different looking landscape. At the moment they are using herbicide spraying and chainsaw felling to cut down these trees, but it's not particularly effective in the long run. It's really expensive to do and sites will still have seed bank in the soil, so seedlings just regrow in the space of a few years. You just wind up with a snowballing problem, so we want to try and look at ecological solutions, so using this indigenous fungus, in conjunction with the current control methods to try and provide better outcomes and longer term suppression. So first up, why are malaria and what do we know about it? Here's Ian Dickey again. As a fungus, it's just the coolest thing in the world. It produces mushrooms that are really prolific, it's edible. And more importantly, as a fungus, it really puts itself about. So faced with the super spreading wilding pines, Armillaria has a bit of clout of its own. We did a study of the deadwood on the west coast and sampled 81 different rimu logs throughout that forest. We found this in every single log. So it was the only fungus that was present in every single piece of deadwood that we measured and it made up about 26% of the fungi in those logs. So this is absolutely the ecosystem dominant in the fungal world. So we would drill into them to get tissue that we could extract the DNA from, and it would squirt out this lemon curd snot from the log. That's what our malaria does to wood. It turns it into this yellowy, slimy mess as part of the decay process. So it's a critical part of the ecosystem. And that's where Genevieve's research fits in. The initial project was funded by the Bioprotection Research Centre and the ongoing work is supported by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. I've been investigating how we can inoculate wood of invasive pine trees and whether the age since the tree has been felled affects the colonisation of the fungus. So what I've found is that live trees, so trees that we have felled ourselves, or very freshly felled trees, the fungus responds a lot better to them for inoculation and grows quite vigorously and healthily on those. That's really promising as a first step for my research because that shows the management implication of if you're going in and felling these trees, cutting them down and leaving them in situ, which is what happens at most sites, that is probably quite a good opportunity to be able to use this as an environmental tool at the same time it's unlikely the fungus would ever fully replace the method of felling trees and spraying herbicide. But we're hoping that if you can use it in conjunction as a sort of a third part of the management practice that it will remain at the sites for longer and help suppress the growth of seedlings that are then coming up after initial removal. Which brings us to our destination here at the University of Canterbury, the Mushroom House. Everything's been having a bit of a water, so we have to switch the hoses off before we can venture inside. A bit damp because we came in right on our cycle. So what have we got here? So all of these tiny little Kmart glass jars filled with chunks of fairly ordinary looking wood is my summer research project. So the wood chunks are what Ian and I went out and collected from invaded sites. And the white fuzz that you see growing all over them are different isolates of the armillaria. You can see that one doesn't look so flash, so that's on really old dry dead wood and the growth on it is not particularly vigorous. 
whereas that's on much fresher, newer wood, and you can see it's almost covering the entire thing. Of course, it wasn't the work of a moment to get them here. So Ian and I went out armed with, uh, much to my disgust, a very small pruning saw to go and fell some, what, 15, 20 centimetre diameter invasive pine trees because Ian didn't want me to do the chainsaw training and all the rigmarole that that entails for health and safety, <laughs> uh, or indeed use an axe. So I got to find out that I'm very, very bad at using a pruning saw, particularly on reasonably large, vigorously growing live trees. How long does it take you to get through this stuff? Oh, well, it takes Ian about five minutes <laughs> because he's got quite a bit of experience doing this and it took me oh, probably 20 minutes of some fairly colourful language and blood, sweat and tears to get one of them down <laughs> and we had to collect upwards of 30 of them. So after suffering for her science and even breaking a pruning saw, Genevieve's research is looking good. It's shown armillaria could help to control wilding pines, but there are some other things to consider. The ability of the fungus to break down plant material could be a worry for some. The forestry industry is really concerned about armillaria in plantations. It's a pathogen on pines and they don't want it in their plantation, so they do a lot of management for it already. I don't think that's really an issue. I mean, the, the concern there is about plantation forests, and we can keep this well away from those areas. Um, it's already throughout the environment. It's just bringing it into the grassland sites where we don't want pines, but it should have no effects on the forestry industry. Genevieve will also be looking at how armillaria affects the native plants growing around the pines. So I am personally planning on seeing how the fungus works when you've got a trial community, so a combination of different native seedling species and pines growing together, and how that community responds to inoculation with the fungus. So what I am hoping to see is that it will weaken, suppress and maybe even kill the pine seedlings, whilst not dramatically affecting the native species. Her hopes are based on the fact that armillaria is found pretty much all over the country in forest areas, and it doesn't seem to have harmed natives. But those are older established forests, and she wants to see what the fungus will do to younger plants. It's an important decomposer in the indigenous forest community, helping to break down trees and dead wood on the forest floor that need to be broken down, otherwise would be all chin deep in dead wood. <laughs> it can switch between being a pathogen and being a decomposer, but we don't see any evidence in the native forests of its pathogenic effect having any serious effect on the forest community. But armillaria does have some specific features that allow it to spread efficiently throughout forest environments, and so with that in mind, we head to the lab where Genevieve can explain a bit more about how this fungus works. Here are some of the more exciting looking ones. So these are the rhizomorphs, bizarre almost alien tentacle looking things growing throughout the agar plate. And the white fuzzy stuff you see on top is hyphae. The hyphae are the filaments that usually make up the body of a fungus, but the rhizomorphs are a kind of cord-like structure made up of a whole lot of parallel hyphae. And a rhizomorph can extend out through the forest soil up to 60 metres, looking for another source of dead wood. The rhizomorphs are what the fungus uses to grow and seek out water, nutrients, new space. And they do seem to confer it some sort of ecological tolerance against stress. The rhizomorphs are a lot tougher and less susceptible to drying out. This is a key advantage for us because those rhizomorphs will let it grow in one log and move out through the soil and seek out 
a new resource. That's one of the key advantages of using this fungus, is that ability to search for new resources and spread vegetatively. And then, of course, one of the greatest advantages of all this is that our malaria is not an introduced species. It's here in New Zealand, which Ian Dickey says should make using it practically a lot more achievable. Normally, if you're importing a new species from overseas, you'd have to get permissions in place, you'd have to rear it in containment, do lots of trials for safety. With this fungus, it's already here. It's one of the most common fungi in New Zealand. So we're not introducing anything that's not already here. It also grows quite quickly. So once we're convinced we have something that's working, we can rear it up and then introduce it in, in field trials. It's a project Genevieve feels passionate about. I really love fungi and mushrooms. That's the first bit of my love for this really, is I like going outside and looking at mushrooms and going, wow, that's really cool. That's <laughs> just totally sort of non-scientific. But I just think they're really charismatic little organisms. There's such a wide variety of form and function in them and they do all sorts of bizarre things that we still really struggle to scientifically comprehend how they work and what they do. And mycology itself is really a very exciting field to be in at the moment because we are learning a lot of new things about how they work, the ecology of them, discovering new species. So it feels like a really exciting and sort of wonderful field to be in. And now she's got the bug, it's likely she'll keep looking out for fungi wherever she goes get very strange looks from people in their offices watching you. After a while they'll just get a reputation. They're like, she's one of those mushroom people. After a while they'll probably just ring security and say, you need to do something about this. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Now, obviously wilding pines are not the only invasive species in Aotearoa. Keeping an eye on the oceans, a national collaborative research programme is developing tools to try stop unwanted critters entering the waters around New Zealand and establishing themselves. And one of the ways those critters might get here is on plastic rafts. And unfortunately, thanks to ocean pollution, these are becoming easier and easier to find. So earlier this year, two national research programmes, the AIM-2 project, which stands for Aotearoa Impacts and Mitigation of Microplastics, and the Marine Biosecurity Toolbox Project combined to collect biosecurity and microplastics data along parts of our coastline. I'm Olga Pantos. I work for ESR. I'm a senior scientist and co-lead for the AIM-2 project. The project's team is made up of a huge range of expertise from six different institutes. So the project has three main objectives. The first one is to understand the levels of microplastics around Aotearoa and this includes the marine system in the surface waters, in the beach sediments and in our Kaimoana, focusing specifically on the green lip mussels and then in the freshwater systems looking in sediments of rivers and in the water itself and then we're also looking in the terrestrial system focusing on horticultural soils um, because of the huge amount of plastics used within the system and there's very little known about terrestrial microplastics because the focus has always been, until relatively recently, on what's happening in our oceans. Coordinated by the Blue Cradle Foundation, whose aim is to make ocean science more sustainable and accessible, researchers from these national projects made two expeditions to collect samples, first through the Hauraki Gulf in June and then in Fjordland in October. In the first expedition, a group of 15 people 
involved in these two big projects, plus some others, sailed north from Tamaki Makoto, collecting data at different sites, both land and open ocean side of islands scattered throughout the Gulf. The team that were focused on plastics took three 15-minute trawl samples at each site, using a manta trawl and filtration to collect microplastics. Raquel Devin of Algalita South Pacific and University of Canterbury master's student Hayden Masterton explain. So you've got a large aluminium mouth, so it's more of a fixed frame that the net sits on and that drags along the surface um, and that captures surface water samples. And we deploy this net off the back of a boat and we tow it along and at the end of the net where it funnels down we have a cod end which is basically just like a little uh, mesh sack uh, and in there the water flushes everything into it, um, the water drains out and we're left with a sample of whatever was on the surface of the ocean where the net was dragged through. So we have, once we get our filters, we wrap them up in aluminium foil just to best protect it against the environment out here and then we take it back to the lab where we'll do some possibly digesting of the plankton and then density separation of the microplastics so they float to the top and then we can pour that off, look under the microscope um, and analyse for how many microplastics there are and what type of polymer there is and that's our results. The trip took two weeks and included a stop in Whangarei for community workshops and school visits, ending in Opua in the Bay of Islands. Now, this is just one small part of the much larger AIM-2 project. There are many other aspects to it, some of which cross over into the other large project that was on board, the Marine Biosecurity Toolbox Project. So we actually have put plastics out into the marine system to look at how different plastics interact with the environment. And this includes the chemicals in the water that can be taken up by the plastics, the microbes that associate with plastics, and larger marine organisms that may be a biosecurity risk. As well as the marine system, we have plastics out in our wastewater treatment plants in the oxidation ponds because we know that they're a major source of um, microplastics to the environment, but they're also a great source of uh, microbes and human pathogens. So one of the risks plastics can pose is the rafting of organisms. So in the marine system, this may pose a biosecurity risk. And in the wastewater treatment plants, this may pose a human health risk if they act as micro rafts and carry potential human pathogens out of the wastewater treatment plant as they uh, leave. Investigating what biosecurity threats might interact with plastic in the ocean is Dr. Xavier Pochon, marine molecular ecologist at the Cawthorne Institute and associate professor at the University of Auckland. We're running um, a number of experiments, one of which is really exciting. It's, it's been going on for a year and a half now in three locations around New Zealand, uh, in Port Littleton, Christchurch, in the Nelson Marina, and in the viaduct area in Auckland. We deployed these, uh, these little, you know, sort of Christmas tree, uh, these plastic tokens that consisted of five different plastic polymers, those that are the most abundant 
in, in our marine environments. So we're talking um, LLDPE, we're talking uh, nylon, you know, nylon that we use for fish nets, uh, also PLA and uh, PET or PET, of course, for bottles and such. And these plastics were put intact in the water as well as artificially aged. So what that means is uh, the same polymers were also put under UV lights to artificially age them and, and then place in the marine environment for, for a year. And we would uh, collect anything that would settle on these plastics through time. And then we apply cutting edge molecular uh, biotechnologies that are now available to us and enable us to isolate the DNA and then sequence all of the organisms that are found on them and, and have a, a really holistic view of the, uh, the biodiversity. And we're right halfway through the, the results uh, processing, but we already uh, have seen some patterns, really interesting patterns of some communities preferring one type of plastics over another. Once we know what marine pests prefers a specific plastic, then uh, we can look out there, look at marine plastic debris and make some prediction about further spread of, uh, of marine pests around New Zealand. Dr Anastasia Zyko, also of the Cawthorn Institute and University of Auckland, explains how this fits into the objectives of the wider biosecurity programme. So Marine Biosecurity Toolbox is a five-year research program which main aim is to harness the best uh, available technologies and uh, science to improve the biosecurity, marine biosecurity system and basically protect our waters from unwanted pests. The program itself uh, consists of four major components to protect our waters from unwanted incursions and to make our ecosystems more uh, resilient against the, those unwanted invasions. Uh, second is to detect those species that get across the border as soon as we can and as efficient as we can so we can effectively mitigate their further spread. Uh, then manage and respond better distribution of resources and better understanding of and predicting how the species may spread if they arrive here and if we fail to detect them in, in uh, time. And finally, decision support uh, by applying bioeconomical tools and modeling. One of the goals of this project is to empower communities to help mitigate these biosecurity risks. That was our vision from the very beginning that we co-develop this program together with the end users and stakeholders. So we do not just come to the end users with some like solutions that we think will work for them, but we ask them and we work together to develop something that is fit for purpose, that we know that will be usable, applicable and uh, technically feasible for them. So it's really important also what is uh, super exciting for me that we have this opportunity to work with the communities. And one of the tools they will use is environmental DNA monitoring. Here is Dr. Pochon again. So eDNA refers to environmental DNA. So the DNA, of course, is the building blocks of life. Uh, all organisms uh, have DNA inside them, including us. And uh, what happens is organisms will shed 
some of their DNA in the surrounding environment. And that comes through, for example, through uh, mucus, through feces, uh, or through uh, dead organisms that break down and then release their DNA. And we now have the technologies to capture this environmental DNA. So, for example, you can go in a marina or in a port or anywhere else, really uh, collect a liter of seawater or half a liter. Uh, you can easily filter that and isolate all of the DNA traces that are left behind by uh, thousands of organisms and then use this so-called high-throughput sequencing technology that enables to sequence uh, specific markers or genes in the, in the genomes of these organisms that are conserved enough so that we can have a glimpse of all of the organisms present in, in this sample. And this is incredibly powerful. It is now applied virtually in all um, biomes around the world. Huh? You can apply this technique on soil, uh, even on organisms in air samples, it, literally everywhere. That sort of information that we can recover through this uh, sequencing is invaluable. Uh, I, I really have hopes that, uh, yeah, in the next few years, we'll be able to deploy this sort of tool, of tool for everyone, for the general public to use uh, with tiny little device you can take with you in the fields uh, and really have a glimpse of who's there and, you know, censor the environment and, and protect it. So you can get DNA from anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, and the, the reason I'm just showing you guys this is to say that don't be limited by where you're going to get your DNA from. This is Associate Professor Joe Stanton from the University of Otago at one of the environmental DNA workshops held in Whangarei. Dr Stanton has a vision to take diagnostics out of the lab and put it into the hands of non-experts. So basically what, what the new technologies are, able, are making us be able to do is to do our measurements in the field. And if we can do measurements in the field, we can get our answers more quickly. If we can get our answers more quickly, it means we can take action immediately. Then you just put that closed. And is it a molecular biologist trick, because you're all going to become one. Just move it so you know you <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Who's next? The, the power of that, um, yes, it's all nice and convenient and geeky because you've got this lovely toy, but the actual power is that at that moment, when you've taken that measurement, you can take an action. And that action might protect a harbour, an entire ecosystem. Right? Um, if you delay, it's escaped. For Dr. Olga Pantos, these opportunities to engage with communities were a key part of the expedition. The workshops that we've been holding along the way on this expedition have just been absolutely wonderful to speak with people. People, you know, people don't necessarily know, understand, appreciate the problem, the scale of the problem and how it affects their daily life and just to highlight these issues and that they are issues that the whole globe is going to have to, to deal with and we all play an important part in doing that. In case you didn't hear it, he said reuse what we throw away in the bin. So sometimes maybe we could have a look at what we're about to throw away and think, does this have another use? Plastic, all plastic is synthetic. It's not natural. It's only there because of human activity. 
and so we have a very strong social cultural aspect to the project so working with communities and various different groups to look at um, you know, what it is we're doing with the plastics and increase an understanding of you know, those reasons why we shouldn't be doing what are the alternatives but at the other end of the scale we're looking at the microbes associated with those plastics from those um, experiments we have in the wastewater treatment plants and in the oceans to see is there anything out there around Aotearoa that has the capacity to be able to use the plastic as an energy source and then degrade it and maybe there are some potential solutions to the plastic issue out there in nature but uh, obviously if there was anything that was really good and really fast we wouldn't be in the position we're in at the moment with so much plastic pollution out there. James Nicotine director of Blue Cradle, is hopeful that the Foundation's efforts to enable collaborative expeditions such as this and the communication around them can lend a hand towards achieving better ocean health for the future. When we talk about plankton or the impacts of microplastics and nutrient runoff and climate change impacts, it's just, it's very unknown. And even climate change, but I think the, the ocean's basically taking the brunt of what climate change is doing to our planet. So I think we should really be more interested in those areas to effect change and potentially uh, reverse the trend, the, the downward trend that the oceans are facing right now. The people you heard in this story were Dr. Olga Pantos, Raquel Devin, Hayden Masterton, Dr. Xavier Pochon, Dr. Anastasia Zyko, Dr. Joe Stanton and James Nicotine. Big thanks to Peter Wells of Blue Cradle Foundation for interviewing, recording and logging the expedition audio. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Thanks to Liz Garten for editing help with this episode. Tim Watkin is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'll share some pictures and links related to the story, and you can access our extensive back catalogue of episodes there. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. This is the last new episode for Our Changing World for the year, But never fear, I've lined up some goodies to drop into your podcast feed over the next few weeks. Some new content made by Centre for Science Communication students at the University of Otago, plus some science content from some of the other wonderful RNZ podcasts. So keep tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.